from time to time, you will hear me read from a Bible translation other than the King James Version. Now, as you know, I preach from the King James Version. I recognize there are other reliable versions. I recognize that the most reliable version is, as far as word-by-word translations, is probably the American Standard 1901 version. But from the time I was a little boy, all the passages of Scripture I ever memorized, I memorized out of the King James translation. And no matter how good or how accurate some other translation might be, I'm too lazy to go back and rememorize that. So therefore, I preach from the same Bible I started preaching with almost 54 years ago, and that's the King James Version. But I do like to sometimes read from other versions to get a better enlightenment, perhaps, on a passage of Scripture. And as you know, my favorites to read from are probably either Moffat's translation by Dr. James Moffat or Phillips' translation by Dr. J.B. Phillips. Well, J.B. Phillips also wrote a book that was published in 1961. And the title of that book was, Your God is Too Small. And the thesis of his book was very basic. It was simply that no one is really at ease in facing what we call life and death without a religious faith. And the trouble with so many people in our world today is their God is too small. They have not found a God that is big enough for modern needs. The experience of this thing called life has grown exponentially in numerous directions. People's mental horizons have been expanded beyond the point of bewilderment in many cases. And yet, no matter how much knowledge has been gained, no matter how much mental horizons have been expanded, people's ideas of God, And what people think about God has remained largely static. And it's obviously impossible for an adult to worship the conception of God that exists in the mind of a child of Sunday school age. And it's likely true that many people continue to grow throughout their lives. All of us have grown. We grow socially. We grow educationally. We grow professionally. And we grow in many other ways. But the tragedy is that so many people remain almost dormant spiritually. And the reason is that so many people spend so little time reading and studying the Word of God. Little time is spent in spiritual activities. And precious little time is often spent in thinking about God at all. 
Life gets cluttered. Life gets busy. And people's lives get cluttered and crowded with the secular things of life and the affairs of this world to the point that the spiritual, the religious, Jesus Christ is almost completely crowded out. And so it's no wonder that for so many people in our day and time, their conception of God remains childlike. I want us to notice for a few moments this morning some inadequate or incomplete conceptions that people have about God. Conceptions that oftentimes people carry with them throughout their entire lives. When you think about God, and you think about inadequate conceptions about God, how do people see God? To a great many people, God is a very old gentleman who lives in a place called heaven. And He's somewhat like a grandfather that they love and that they see occasionally. But God is largely out of sight and God is largely out of mind. And when they think of God as being old, they don't think of Him as being old in terms of chronological years so much as they think of Him as being old-fashioned. Their conception of God is a being who was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And God is envisioned as an old man with a long beard sitting on a throne wearing a robe and ruling over His kingdom there in heaven. And then to many people, conscience is almost their total conception of God. God is a nagging voice inside that gives warnings against certain acts of behavior. And this nagging conscience idea is is really all that some people know about God. Conscience. What is it? Conscience is a sensitivity to moral values. It's a capability of knowing what's right and what's wrong. Conscience is an inner sense of warning. It's something that sets man apart from the animals. Animals that have no such feelings of conscience. But folks, it is extremely inadequate to say that conscience is God. It would be better to say it's simply a uniquely human quality that's a part of God's wonderful creation Known as man. And then, to some folks, God is nothing more than a parental carryover. When they were children, their decisions were largely made for them by their parents. When to get up, when to go to bed, what to do, what to think, when to eat. And when a man or a woman becomes grown, in a certain sense, God takes over those responsibilities. Directing and guiding their lives. 
But there's a great difference between the relationship that parents have to their children and the relationship God has to us as His children. You see, God recognizes every one of us as a mature creature of choice. And God allows every one of us to be His own man or His own woman to make our own decisions for time and for eternity. God's willing. God's ready to advise. God is willing and ready to guide us. But God never, never forces His decisions upon us, His children. And then to many people, God is a means of psychological escapism. This might come as a shock to you. But life has many problems. Life has many ups and downs. Life makes heavy demands on us as individuals. And sometimes we just want to run away. We want to run away from the problems and the cares of this world. We want to seek comfort and security. All of us are familiar with the words to the old hymn by Charles Wesley. We don't sing it very often. If I mistake not, it's number 365 in our books. I'm not going to sing it for you. But the text of that grand old hymn is, Jesus, lover of my soul. Let me to thy bosom fly, while the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high. Hide me, O oh my Savior, hide, till the storm of life is past. Safe into the haven, guide, O oh, receive my soul at last. To the mind of the non-Christian, that song by Wesley sounds like escapism. But real Christianity does not invite us to run away from life. Real Christianity does not invite us to bury our heads in the sand. On the contrary, God provides the inner man with strength and stability. God gives us strength and stability inside of us to enable us to go back and to fight the battles of life. Take Paul, for example. Paul lived in difficult times. And if you look at the life of Paul, he was constantly in rough waters. He prayed to God often. And he communed with God regularly. And what did Paul get for that? Paul received the inner spiritual strength that enabled the great apostle to fight like a lion in the battles of life. Write this down. It's on the final exam. God does not provide us with an escape from reality. But God will give us the strength to face reality. God does not protect us 
from the storms of life that will come our way. But God will give us the strength to see us safely through those storms. And then some people, especially the people of the feel-good gospel, the, the people that write all these books about the gospel of prosperity, the people that tell you, oh, you're going to experience your best life now. Just sow a little seed with God and you'll be blessed abundantly. The folks with the pretty hair and the pretty teeth that are on TV all the time. They feel like God has been captured. And God has been tamed. And trained to their liking. And they think God is on call to do their bidding. And their prayers are primarily asking God to provide certain services. Like he's their personal butler or their bellboy in the hotel. And in in a sense, for them, God is manipulated by man. And that erroneous conception of God pictures God merely as someone who can be called on to get man out of trouble or protect him in time of need. And the sad truth is that to so many people today, God is a second-hand God. He's known to them only through the testimony of others. They never have personally felt a closeness and a relationship with God. They have no personal experience with God upon which they can draw near to Him in faith and obedience and receive from God assurance and blessings. All these things that I've just mentioned, all of these are incomplete or they are inadequate conceptions of God. There's some validity and there's some truth into every one of these things that I've mentioned. But as a whole, they are inadequate conceptions of God. And those who hold to these views we've been talking about For them, their God is too small. I want you to use your sanctified imagination with me this morning. And I want you to imagine that you're in a dark dungeon. And in this dark dungeon, there is no light at all. And you have never had any experience with light. Light is something that's strange to you. It's unknown to you. And so in this dark dungeon, what are the possibilities that you have? Well, you could light a candle. But that tiny flicker of light that's going to come from the candle is only going to dispel a small part of the darkness in that dungeon that you're in. You see that candle. You see the flickering flame. You see that it's light. But it's a weak light. And it's an inadequate light. Or you can bore a hole through the side of the dungeon. And as you bore a hole through the side of the dungeon, you can get a glimpse of sunlight. But it's only going to be a tiny pinpoint of light. And like the candle, it's going to be only partial. And it's going to be inadequate. Or maybe, just maybe, you can open the door to the dungeon. 
and walk outside into the brilliant sunlight. And what will it do? It will dazzle your eyes. It's going to overwhelm you. And then you will have not just the flicker of a candle but a, or the pinpoint of a hole in the wall, but then you will have a conception of light in all of its grandeur, all of its glory, and all of its beauty. That's what I want to do just for a moment this morning with our conception of God. When we're children, we only see God partially. When we're children, we hear the story of Noah and the ark and the animals and the great flood and God destroyed the earth and we see the, the rainbow and God promised He'd never destroy the earth with floods again. But we don't know everything about God. We see God as children only partially. We see the flicker of the candle or the pinpoint through the wall. But as adults... We need to open the door and walk out into the fullness of the sunlight of God's redeeming love and see God in all of His grandeur and all of His glory and see God in His fullness. In Acts chapter 17, Paul goes to Athens. And Paul preaches a sermon there on Mars Hill. And he's trying to do what I want to try to do this morning. He's trying to reveal the true and living God to people who had only known God dimly and people that had only known God at a distance. And Paul begins that sermon on Mars Hill by telling his Athenian listeners that the true God created the universe. The true God created everything that was in it. And then he conveyed to them the idea that the true God continues to sustain the universe and the true God provides for the needs of man. And he pictured God then as a person. And he identified God as the father of mankind. And humans as his offspring. The message that Paul preached described God as personal. It described God as eternal. And it described God as loving. And it climaxed. By revealing a day of judgment and a Savior who had been raised from the dead to live eternally. And with that in mind, I want you to listen to what Paul would write in Acts chapter 17 and verses 22 through 31. Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, You men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything seeing He giveth to all life and breath and all things, and has made of one blood all nations of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after Him and find Him, though He be not 
far from every one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our very being as certain also of your own poets have said. For we are also His offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God. We ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's devices. And the times of this ignorance God winked at. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because He's appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He hath ordained, whereof He hath given assurance unto all men, in that He hath raised Him from the dead." Paul was telling them about the God of heaven. He was trying to give them a more complete conception of God. When I think of God, and I think of the majesty and the glory of God, my mind just naturally goes to the 19th Psalm. Do you remember the opening verses of the 19th Psalm? Well, I'll tell you what they are. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. If we had lived a thousand years ago, our conception of God would have necessarily been more limited than it is today. If we had lived a thousand years ago, we would not have known of other continents beyond the ocean. And we would have supposed the stars were simply pinpoints of light surrounding our center of the universe. If we'd lived a thousand years ago, we might have debated, as some of the ancients did, over the number of stars. Are there 5,026 or 5,022? They actually did that. You and I, living in 2023, we are in a position because of discoveries that have been made to appreciate the greatness and the glory of God better than any generation that's ever lived. We have a knowledge of the sun, its planets, and billions of stars, not 5,026. All of these make up the many galaxies in an infinite space. And we know of a submicroscopic world and its magnificence of form and function. In this world we live in, folks, we're in a position to see the greatness and the genius of God like no generation before us could have ever guessed. Now, all of this might leave God as a great force somewhere out in space. We might appreciate His power and His genius, but never know God's concern for us. So God did something about that. God, in His infinite wisdom, sent Jesus Christ to earth. And you know why Jesus came? Jesus came so people could see God firsthand. Jesus came... So people could see God up close and personal. Here's the way John writes it. In John chapter 1, 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Talking about Jesus. All things were made by Him, and was not anything made that was made in Him was life. And the life was the light of men. Now skip down to verse 14. And the Word... Wait a minute. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's why Jesus would say to Philip in John 14 verse 9, have I been so long time with you, and thou hast not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me has seen the Father. We know what God is like. Because we've seen Christ in the flesh. Through this book we call the Bible, we know how He lived. We know where He went. We know what He did. We even know what He thought. We have descriptions of His attitudes and His values. And in all of this, we have the revelation of the nature of God. God made Himself personal to us through Jesus Christ. And God did that so we could feel about Him as a loving Father. A Father who is infinitely interested in the affairs of our lives. He knows the number of hairs on our head. A sparrow cannot fall without Him taking notice. And through Jesus Christ, we feel God's love. Through Jesus Christ, we learn of God's grace. The infinite God is focused so that we can see and we can understand. With this kind of revelation of God through nature and through Christ, we're able to find answers to some of the most pressing questions. We ask, what kind of person is God? What sort of person is God? And the answer is, He's a Father. Infinitely good and wise and just. We find that His very essence is love. Because 1 John 4 and verse 8 simply says, God is love. And we ask then, well, what is the purpose of life? And when we ask, what is the purpose of life? We hear the words of Jesus in Mark 12, 29. Through 31, the first of all commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. That's the first commandment. And the second is like it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is no other commandment, Jesus said, greater than these. Well, we ask, well, what's wrong with our world? And the answer that comes back to us is man's self-centeredness. That's what's wrong with our world. Loving himself the way mankind does 
There is no love left for God or for our fellow man. Well, what sort of people does God intend for us to be? Well, we hear the answer. God wants His people to be the kind that would advance the purpose of the universe. Well, what's that? Loving God and loving each other. We learn about God's whole concern. That as much as God is concerned about outward acts, God is even more concerned about the heart and the motives of men and women. And when we look through this book, and when we observe Jesus Christ, we learn something about the values of God. That God's values are often very different from man's values. That God's values are often the very opposite of what men and women aspire to do. Simply put, the greatness of God, the majesty of God, is beyond comprehension. And yet modern men and women have the possibility of appreciating God's greatness better than those of any other generation previously. The great tragedy is, it's like a lady that used to work for us. She kept house for my mother when I was a small boy. I can remember that far back. And we were watching some news reports on TV of things that were going on and she looked at my mother and she said, you know, Miss Perkins, people have just gotten too far away from God. And that's where we are today. Modern man, modern woman, modern men and women don't feel the awesomeness of God. And therefore people live their own willful way. We find people, people in positions of authority, high elected officials, they only know how to use the name of God in profanity and as a byword. Modern men and women fail to worship God. But in spite of that, there are still in our day and time those who live close to the Lord. Thank God there are. Those who read and study their Bibles those who study the life of Jesus Christ. And reading and studying our Bibles and studying the life of Jesus Christ, we come to see something of the enormity of God. May we recognize God for what He is. And may we worship God and respect Him as we should. And may we deepen and broaden and heighten our own conception of God. May we realize, may we realize just how big God is. And someday, we'll meet Him face to face. It's His invitation as we stand and while we sing.